Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. It's Women's History Month, and there's no better way to celebrate than by hearing from amazing women who are making history and changing the world for the better. Learn from leaders like Tori Birch, Madeline Albright, Ariana Huffington, Katie Couric, Valerie Jarrett, and more. Listen to Seneca Women Conversations on Power and Purpose on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, welcome to Movie Crush. Charles W. Chuck Bryant here. Once again, one of our L.A. shows out here in the L.A. studio, guest producer Doug. And uh, I had Dax Shepard in, which was a real treat because uh, Dax and his uh, lovely wife Kristen Bell have been kind enough to tweet about Stuff You Should Know over the years. And I know we mentioned on Stuff You Should Know, but they they are fans of the show and they've been listening for a long time. And have sent out random little tweets here and there about listening to stuff you should know, which we always appreciated. And because uh, they were sort of the, the biggest and still probably are our biggest legit movie stars to kind of voice their support for the show. And it always meant a lot to us. And so I reached out to his people and uh, he, I think, may have even rearranged a thing or two to come into our L.A. studio and uh, and sit down with me to talk about Raising Arizona so we ended up having a very good talk about uh, movies and about his life and cars. Uh, of course, he's a, he's a car guy. He's a gearhead. And um, a really good conversation. It was cool to talk to a guy who is an actor and a writer and a director. Uh, and he's been in so many good movies over the years. Uh, and obviously, Parenthood, the great TV show. Um, Idiocracy is, is one of the all-time faves uh, for for me and a lot of people. And... It was cool to get his perspective as a, as an actor and a director and as a writer on stuff. And we had a good time talking about Raising Arizona and Smoking the Bandit and Burt Reynolds. He has some good insider stories about Burt because he worked with him. And it was just a real treat. So big thanks to Dax for coming in. And uh, we also got to talk about podcasting because he has dipped his toe in the pond in a big way with his uh, newish show, Armchair Expert, which uh, he launched uh, to great success kind of recently. Whereas he's, he, these great deep dive conversations with people about the uh, the difficulties of being a human in the world. Uh, it's a really good show and it's very uh, substantive and I think does a lot of good good for people out there to show uh, the warts and all of, of the difficulties of just kind of knocking around in day-to-day life as a person. So um, check out Armchair Expert for sure. But here we go with Dak Shepard in Raising Arizona. 
Now you're your own enterprise though, right? Yes. Or are you with the network? No, we're our own thing. And you launched, I mean, that was super impressive, man. Congratulations. I've had zero success in my life. I mean, I've had obviously well, a ton true. of success <laughs> in that we're talking. Yes. But I have most often put a ton of labor into things and they underperform. Okay. Let's just say that. I've never been, I've never been in Frozen. You know what I'm saying? Like my wife right. is, she's come in first place many times uh-huh. between- <laughs> You know, uh, uh, Bad Moms yeah. and Frozen. Uh, so I- I'm used to like work two years on a movie, uh-huh. comes out super disappointing, depression yeah. for eight months, and then keep moving. <laughs> and this thing launched like. Gangbusters. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like uh, the fucking Apollo 13. That yeah. one blew up? What one blew up? Oh, <laughs> you should know this. Know, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've done an episode on it and you've forgotten. But at any rate, yes, I was quite shocked that it. it um, yeah, way to go, man. It, That's it, great. It's, yeah. It's a really so good happy. show. Oh, thank you. I've listened to about half of them so mm. far. Oh, you have? Yeah. Well, first off, how do you find time to listen to podcasts when you're so busy producing them? Well, I'm also head of content for our network, so that's kind of part of the job. It's, it's just kind of like listen feeling to, what's out there yeah, and working. And try and try and get people over with this if we can. And Yeah, well, I, ha- I had wanted to do one for a long time because I've been guests on many of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of me was the, the, the self-loathing part of me was like, Oh, geez, you're so late to the party. Everyone already has one. What are you going to do differently? Well, it's a little scary these days. Uh-huh. I would. I could not imagine trying to launch one new. Yeah, it's a, there's a lot of uh, products on the shelf. You mm-hmm. know, I don't know how one stands out. But um, once I started doing it, it actually – I didn't even know what I was trying to do mm-hmm. until I started doing it. Yeah. And then I realized, like, oh, there is, there was a niche for me to be uh, asking specifically, like, what's going on with people's egos and their emotions and yeah. all these things. Like, that. that's what I'm most interested in. And, and you know, it's just by accident that it happened to be mm-hmm. something I think that was unique or is unique. You know? It's resonating or, uh, with people for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, it, I think it's kind of cool to, to listen to people you know or mm-hmm. you believe you know a lot about. And you have an idea in your mind of how they live and what they feel like day to day. I certainly had it. That's why I moved out here. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I bet Nick Cage wakes up and does a backflip out of bed, right. <laughs> hops in a Ferrari, meets the hottest girl in town and goes to lunch. Like there, he probably there can't does. be anything, <laughs> you know, any strife in his life. Yeah. Uh, and it, nor is it a woe is me, oh, poor me, I'm right. famous and rich. It's not that either. It's just like. Oh, do these things, these accomplishments that we we buy into, that yeah. if we accomplish them, we will love ourselves and, and wake up f- without that voice in our head that tells us we're a piece of shit. Yeah. And generally speaking, it doesn't go away. Right. There isn't really anything you can accomplish that's going to fix that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I find that oddly um, comforting to people. And unifying. Yeah. Yeah. It's comforting to me. Sure. I, I far prefer when I hear someone on a talk show you know, share a failing of theirs yeah. or a character defect. I'm like, oh, good, good. I'm not as bad yeah. as I think I am. Yeah. Because if I'm just looking at Tom Cruise, I'm like, well, I don't know. I guess he's doing it perfect and I'm not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how. Where are the cracks there? Yeah. So it's been fun. And then we just, um, today was our first episode of this thing I'm kind of trying to spin off called Experts on Experts, where we actually talk to doctors and professors. And, oh, cool. Is it the I same feed or? Uh, yes. Yeah, so today we kind of launched on our platform and uh-huh. then I hope to kind of spin it off. Kind of the way, I guess, um, yeah, Radio Lab did More Perfect. Right. Yeah. Do you listen to More Perfect? No. Oh! It's good? It's so tasty. Holy smokes. It's the the whole show is about kind of landmark uh, Supreme Court decisions. Oh, wow. 
historically, you know, yeah. times where they actually ended up taking power, you know, uh-huh. as that leg. They were really neutered for so long. They were, I think they were in the basement of some building, uh-huh. uh, you know, at the, the beginning of our country. And um, just how they've slowly become a, a much more powerful force and they, they do guide policy now. And there's, you know, it's it's a really fascinating road. And, and um, they, they kind of, uh, they go through these different cases and there's some of the craziest cases you can imagine mm-hmm. that actually overturned laws or, or, or made the- right. There's one in particular where they they have all these sodomy laws on the books uh-huh. in states. Yeah, still. Yeah, and um, they're they're really hard to get off the books legislatively. Like no no uh, local uh, elected politician even wants to take that on. Really? There's, yeah. Uh, Why just so because sodomy in their name in a headline? I'm sure those that's not the pairing <laughs> they they were looking for. <clears throat> but just they just don't want to they don't want to touch it. Yeah. And and the, and, the, and generally they go, you know what? These aren't being enforced, so mm-hmm. why even deal with it? Uh, and then there was this crazy case of these uh, two guys that were, uh, you know, they, it was said that they were in a fight upstairs and there was a gun involved, blah blah mm-hmm. blah, from someone who called. Well, that wasn't the case, but anyways, the cops show up and there's two guys kind of engaged in you know some kind of activity yeah. that would violate the sodomy law, and they're both belligerent, they're drunk and they're on drugs uh-huh. and they won't cooperate. And the guy, the the cop thinks. I need to separate these two and yeah. I don't really know what I can charge them with to get them in the car and separate it because they're going to kill mm-hmm. each other. And so he, he charges them with sodomy. And so they, they end up in jail. And then uh, a civil rights attorney finds out about this case, someone who's been trying to get the sodomy law off the books forever. And it's like, finally, we have a sodomy charge. Right. We can fight this. And these two guys who now become the, 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 you know, the, the mascot of this movement, mm-hmm. they want nothing to do with it. A, they weren't having sex. Right. And then when you really go through the, the, the account of the different officers there, in five seconds you recognize, oh, they could easily defend this, plead innocent, yeah. and there, the, there would be no conviction. Yeah. But they're urging them to plead guilty and, to, and say they were right. just so they can get it up to the Supreme Court. So you have these two guys that want nothing to do with this case. The, the attorney has to find them at different bars. Yeah. They're always hammered. And uh, you're like, wow, that's that's how the sodomy laws were Weird. struck down, you know, federally. You know, the most and that was on the Radio Lab show? That was on More Perfect, uh-huh. which is a spinoff of right. – it's a show that Radio Lab, I guess, produces. Oh, so it's not the same. It's not Jed and uh... – It's not Jed Apparad. Apper- I know. <laughs> <laughs> Jad Applemrod and Krolich. What is it? Robert? Robert Krolich? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they've been around forever Love too. those guys. Yeah. I, I'd have to, that's in my top three podcasts. But you, you know what's really funny? I'm going to share something with you that you wouldn't have known about our, our, our relationship. Well, I may. Okay, so years ago, I was going to Atlanta to visit my wife, uh, who was filming down there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, stuff you should know guys are down there. And I tweeted you. Yeah. And said, like, I'll be in town. I want to be on your show. I remember that. Yes. And you responded, and this is just so telling of how fragile my self-esteem is. You tweeted back something. I can't remember the details, but what I interpreted Well, that was Josh, first of all. He does Twitter. Oh, he does? Okay. Okay. So Josh, I guess, tweeted back something. And I forget the details, but what I I heard was, uh, you're crazy if you think we're just going to let you come on the show. (laughs) Yes, so that's that's what I heard. Okay, so for the last couple of years, I've been like, oh, those guys are real bratty. They didn't want anything to do with me. I offered to come down to Atlanta and do their oh, show. No, 
All this goes on. And then you maybe start, but maybe it's Josh, you start reaching out about doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I can't believe now they've got the gall to ask me to do this podcast. Oh, no. But let me just tell you, this, <laughs> this is all going in your, this will ultimately end in embarrassment for you, for me, and, and, and applaud to you. I just, I decide, I think, they couldn't be this blatant about now inviting me on this other podcast right. and they're so rude to me about the other one. And I actually took the time to search the, the tweet and, oh, I, good. and, I, and I found it. What did it say? It wasn't offensive at all. Again, I can't even remember, but I reread it probably on that day. I was feeling better about myself. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, there's nothing offensive about this at all. Do you remember what Why it was? Did? No, I wish I could tell you the exact sentence, but but it just goes to show there's nothing objective about a sentence for me. I read it one time two uh-huh. years ago, and I was like, you guys are mean. And then I read it like a month ago, and I was like, no, they were nice, and the door was probably open. For I remember you Josh saying that you, you tweeted, and I was like, I was, we were trying to think of like, man, let's do a show on muscle cars and get them. We were brainstorming oh. Oh. on what we could do. Uh huh. So I have no idea what he would have said. I was hoping to do something like anthropologically right. related or something. Yeah. But I love that show so much. I, I've, I've, I've steered as many people as I can to like I know, the, celiac, the celiacs episode was really fascinating. Like I appreciate the history it. of the corn production, how that changed. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, we've, no, we've, we've noticed you and your wife tweeting over the years here and there. Mm-hmm. And we've always appreciated it. Um, and I actually met her. I don't know if she even told you this in New Orleans. Did she tell you that? I probably not. It was, uh, I was in New Orleans. We don't talk very much. <laughs> we only talk in commercials. <laughs> well, it was not a big deal to her. It's probably why. Um, but we were doing a live show in New Orleans and my wife and, uh, I have an almost three year old now, but she was like 18 months at the time. Uh huh. And they came to New Orleans cause we had friends there. We were walking around. Emily comes out of a bakery and says, Kristen Bell is in there. Ah, and I was, I'm not usually the kind of guy to bug people, Sure, but I know that you guys had been kind to tweet about us. I was like, you know, I feel like I should go in and say hi. Yeah. And she sees me coming over, you know, lumbering over like a big monster, <laughs> uh-huh. Harry. And she's probably with um, our, at that time, three yeah. year old and six month old. Your two daughters yeah. and then uh, her uh, assistant or friend. Uh-huh. And I could see it on her face. I know that look like, oh, Jesus, what's, what is this guy? <laughs> what will this interaction be like? So I immediately, very quickly, I'm like, I'm just Chuck from Stuff You Should Know. <laughs> just want to say thanks for, for tweeting out support over the years. And she was so sweet and even insisted that. We change our daughter in her booth ah. uh, because she was like, you can't go in that bathroom. It's terrible. She was like, <laughs> sit down right here, change her right here. And yeah. uh, she just could not have been kind. That's very much my wife. Yeah, that was I very, very nice. I aspire to be as kind as she is to everybody. It was now, a see, delightful interaction. I, I doubt she was thinking as you walked up anything negative. Now, because this <laughs> is the difference. I, I say this perfectly uh, details the difference between Belle and I. If we're walking down the street and we see you walking at us, uh-huh. my first thought is like, this guy's going to go for my wallet. <laughs> and her first thought is like, that guy might cure cancer. Right. Like she, she really is expecting yeah. the absolute best out of everyone. Yeah, and I'm, yeah. in the, I'm expecting the worst. Well, that's a good match. And I listened to the episode with you guys on your show, uh-huh. which was really great. Oh, thank you. And just good. As I said in the intro, I, I really debated even putting it out. I'm like, who wants nah, to hear bicker for... <laughs> I think it's relatable. And like, Mm -hmm. I think everyone, especially if you're married, um, you want to hear real people talking about real life and marriage is no picnic and it's tough. Well, and the reason I so wanted to put it out was that I 
feel like we can be a part of the problem very easily. Mm-hmm. You know, this problem I I would say with Instagram and yeah. Twitter and Facebook, where you're you're seeing a very curated version of other people's lives, and yeah. you're starting to feel like you don't go on vacation and you don't have barbecues, and right? Life's not fun. Yeah. And then you look at us, and it seems like our our day our day to day is me getting her a sloth, or uh-huh. you know, right. And so I just worry that we're setting some kind of example mm-hmm. that's really fairy tale and not realistic. And yeah. so the more, I guess, we can be honest about that we go to therapy or that sure. we fight over stupid shit like going to Michael's. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe it's helpful. <clears throat> it is. It is helpful. Yeah. And that, that was great. Because I had a buddy from Detroit who said to me, it was like after this, the 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 sloth Video had gone viral. And mm. if you don't know about that, I, I rented one for the day for her yeah. birthday, right? <laughs> and then pretty she, great. I was filming her and she was bawling. She was so excited there was a sloth at the house. And then she showed it on Ellen and then it became this really viral video. And my yeah. buddy from Detroit goes, you know what? what you've just started. There's guys are going to be trying to steal <laughs> sloths out of zoos to like make their girlfriends happy. Like you've created, right. you're probably going to be responsible for like 12 sloth deaths this year. Sloth Again, someone who thinks just like me, like the worst thing possible. Right. These are your old Detroit uh, boys. Yeah, yeah. That always check in with me to remind me I wear too much, you know, moisturizer and stuff. <laughs> Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With Geico, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with Geico. It's almost better than sports. Hey, it's Ben, Henry, and Marcus, hosts of The Last Podcast on the Left. Our show's dedicated to uncovering hilariously horrifying stuff. And now we're only on Spotify. Join Join us. If you want. Obviously, we'd never force anyone to just blindly... Join us. That'd be crazy. But if you like stories about doomsday cults who do exactly that and more, please... Join Join us. On Spotify. Visit Spotify.com slash last podcast to listen free. So you grew up in Michigan. Um, what was your, how did movies factor into your life growing up? Did you know you wanted to do this? I had no idea. It did not seem even conceivable being in Michigan. You uh-huh. know, it was, we were all immersed uh, in the auto industry right. and I loved cars and racing and all that stuff. So yeah. that seemed like, it, like the pipe dream was like, oh, I, I want to be a race car driver. But the, I think the reason movies became such a, um, an important part of my childhood is that it was something I did with uh, my brother and I's Papa Bob, my dad's dad. Mm -hmm. And we generally went to his house all summer because my mom worked a ton and she was a single mother. Um, So Papa Bob would just- a great name for Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he lives up to the, the, yeah, he he worked, uh, he was a Golden Gloves boxer, heavyweight. He Uh worked at Wonder Bread Bakery for uh, 40 years and he carried 80 pound bags of flour. So his biceps, they look like Hulk Hogan. So he's- like he was just a badass, larger than life, larger than life, so kind, so loving, and he would take us to the movies uh, a couple times a week all summer. Mm-hmm. And um, I think this is actually one of your questions I saw. Uh, uh, so I have a couple first memories of movies, but one of them was seeing Conan uh, the Barbarian. Oh yeah, at, sure. At the drive-in, and being too young for that because you know there's a a part where they 
they dip this huge cauldron over and mm-hmm. then bones are like rolling down the stairs and stuff. And yeah, there's a pretty explicit sex scene in that too, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> there is. Um, so that was one of my first movies. And then the other two I really remember being my first was um, Ten with Bo Derek, mm-hmm. which again was fully adult movie. Yeah. And here's the worst is my grandpa took me to see Scarface when I was five or six. <laughs> it came out when I was five or six. <laughs> And I was pretty on board with the movie until they get to the scene where they cut the guy up in a tub with a chainsaw. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And at six years old, I was like, oh, my goodness, that's the world we live in? Like, this this kind of thing happens in the world? Yeah. and then he took us to all the porkies. Uh-huh. You know, it was just he—he he never crossed his mind what was age appropriate or yeah. anything. So we were just seeing whatever he wanted to see all summer long. Mm. And uh, yeah, and then I think if I had to say what was my first favorite movie, the one I just I couldn't stop watching was mm. Smoking the Bandit. Like mm. once I discovered that movie, and uh, we got it. You know, uh, I think I think we recorded it on VHS yeah. at my dad's house. He had on TV, and we recorded it, and we just watched that every single weekend. And yeah. When we rode big wheels, we were playing uh-huh. Bandit and the Snowman and everything. Yeah. Um, I got a pretty good Smokey and the Bandit story, if you oh, want to hear please. this. Oh, please. I would love to. They shot that, a lot of that, near our house. In Lake Lanier? In, in Georgia and around, you know, Atlanta. Uh-huh. Like suburban Atlanta. Right. And uh, a couple of things happened. One is Bert had a signing one day uh-huh. that my mom drugged me down there. When I was, geez, I don't know how old I would have been. Like, what you know, what year that movie 77, came out? Seventy-seven, I think. All right, so I would have been like five or six, yeah. five when they were making it. Right. Just remember standing in line for a couple of hours. <laughs> for meeting someone Burt you Reynolds. have no idea who he is, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was like, all right, I got that he was a movie star. Uh huh. Uh-huh. My mom met him. Um, our my elementary school and our station wagon is in one scene. Oh, really? Uh, right before they jump onto the football field. That was like our ah. little league, local little league football field. Really? Yeah. And uh, which as a kid, you know, it's like, oh, my oh, God, yeah. this station wagon. Yeah. And here's, you're going to love this part. For probably 10 years after that movie in our garage, we had Jackie Gleason's car door that got knocked you're off. You're kidding. The sheriff's door. Oh. That somehow my dad came up. Cross it. Really? And eventually, literally fucking threw it in the trash. Yeah, that's what happens to these things. And Because like, I would buy that right now. Yeah. And looking, I would put it in a, piece a of loose memory box <laughs> and I would hang it in my living room. My wife would kill me. But yeah, I would. Isn't that I, crazy? Yeah. The thing that I, so I did a movie with Burt Reynolds. Which one? Um, Without a Paddle. He was in Without a Paddle. Oh, okay. And um, and we were in New Zealand, so he was kind of a captive audience. There uh-huh. wasn't much to do. And yeah. I would go to his trailer every day at lunch and just beg him yeah. for details, you know. Uh, which Mr. Reynolds, Mr. Reynolds. He was the perfect guy for that because he loved telling stories. I'm just referring to him as if he's passed. But yeah. um, he loves telling stories. Uh-huh. He's very gracious. And, sure. and I think he enjoyed that. They're like, you know, many generations after his were yeah. still obsessed. So That's cool. He told me so many amazing things about that movie and and I and we got pretty close by the end of it and the whole time in my head I, I didn't outright ask for it but I just asked him like hey you still got that Trans Am jacket you had in the movie you oh, know wow. cuz I was like if I could somehow get <laughs> you know willed that uh-huh. I would just wear that every single day yeah. um did he have it he said he has it. He said he's, he said he has everything that, oh, wow. really that he's ever. And then I think there was some big auction years ago, right? Yeah, he was in some financial I trouble. And I think a lot of that stuff got auctioned. Uh, what a shame. Yeah, yeah. yeah that and uh, Hooper was my big one. Can I tell you two great things about? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, Hooper with you all the way. Yeah, Hal Needham plus Burt Reynolds mm-hmm. is you're not going to top that. Yeah, Cannonball Run, of course. 
But a couple of things about that he told me about um, smoking the bandit, and I'm sure that you already know these, but um, one of the things was we, we were talking about Jackie Gleason, you mm-hmm. know, and he, he he just has so much reverie for Jackie. And yeah. He, he said, uh, you know, he's like, I had to fly down to New Orleans. I think he lived there or something. I had to fly down and convince Jackie Gleason to do this movie. And the script was never more than a 40 page outline. There, yeah. there was not, there was no dialogue. It was just like wow. an, an outline for a movie. Uh-huh. And he had to like say to Jackie, like, it's going to be great. You can say whatever you want mm-hmm. and let's do it. And he got him to do it. And so just, I love the notion that everything Jackie Gleason's saying is just coming out. He's the improving. Top. Yes. He's wow. just improving. And he said, you know, he drank heavily uh-huh. on set Jackie Gleason <laughs> and, uh, and, and he had, and he had an assistant, uh, James, and he, he would say to James, James, hamburger, <laughs> and he'd hold his hand out, and James would put no way. a glass of vodka in his hand, <laughs> and then he'd go, James, cheeseburger, and he'd put his fingers out, and James would put a lit cigarette in his fingers. Oh my and god! And then Burt Reynolds said, "Why do you call it a uh, hamburger and cheeseburger?" And he goes, "I can't have anyone know what I'm drinking on set." <laughs> So what's so great when you watch the movie, knowing that, thinking about how much, how many scenes they have with him, like hauling ass down the road yeah. in a big Pontiac, uh-huh. Catalina or Bonneville or whatever, driving at speed, full speed wow. stunts, knowing that Jackie's probably half in the bag. Yeah. What a different era. Yeah. Boy, that's great. Yeah. Hamburger and cheeseburger. <laughs> yeah. James Cheeseburger. <laughs> like that's fooling anybody. <laughs> I know. Like, oh. Yeah, he's just having a tall glass of ice water three yeah. times a day. And man, Bert was just like, he was the coolest dude. Absolutely. Like there was no one bigger. No. He was the biggest. Um, I was corrected about this. I made this claim on my show. But um, he was the biggest um, box office draw for like mm-hmm. seven out of the ten years or something. He yeah. has some incredible record that no one's really ever topped. Yeah. And the thing that is so impressive about him is <clears throat> exactly that. Y- you could send him somewhere with uh-huh. no script. And just cameras in a device, be it a boat for Gator or, mm-hmm. or, or a Trans Am for this or a Hooper, another Trans Am, you know. Yeah. And he could make something amazing out of nothing, mm-hmm. which I just, I don't think you could send too many current movie stars no. away and just go, good luck. Right. <laughs> I hope you make it. There's yeah. no script. Figure it out. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's just really impressive because I think Smoking the Band was the second biggest movie of that year, second or third. Made like a hundred and eight million dollars in yeah, seventy seven. Which yeah. back then is crazy money. Yeah, gigantic. Yeah. Uh yeah, man, I love that movie. And Hooper just I was really sort of obsessed with stuntmen and stunts. Mm-hmm. And to see a movie about only that yes. was for little whatever, twelve year old me or however old I was, was like just the best. Yeah. Yeah. That informed my Vincent. fantasy <laughs> of what a stuntman's life was. Yeah. You know, like I saw that movie and I'm like, oh, that's how it is. Mm-hmm. They have sweet ranches. Their horses bend down and open their beer for them. They get in fist fights. They're fighting every night. <laughs> yeah. They're banging Sally Field. <laughs> like right. what, what, what could be a better occupation? Yeah. Yeah. And they're doing stuff and their buddies are patting them on the back and uh-huh. stuff. Yeah. It's just but the that was dream. the dark side too, though. Like I remember even as a kid seeing like him taking those pills and yes, like put together with, Duct tape and spit and yeah, yeah, and I think uh, especially during that period, um, you know, the notion of opioid addiction and all that wasn't sure. really on the front of anyone's mind. So, yeah, he was he he was also pretty honest about that stuff. I was really curious about all the addiction in yeah. that, that circle, and it's pretty it was pretty high, like you find in the you know X Games athletes. Mm-hmm. Like these guys are living in tremendous pain, and right, 
just beating their bodies up. Yeah, it's pretty hard to just moderately take opiates for right a decade. I imagine. <laughs> yeah, you just kind of you eventually start having to ramp up. Well, I imagine even just and this is something you've done, like jumping a car. Yeah. Probably takes a toll on your body. Well, especially I, back then. I will say I had the great luxury of when I jumped a car in a movie, I had 30 inches of suspension travel. Right. <laughs> you know, they were jumping, you know, they were jumping 70s. Yeah. Full size cars that weighed 6,000 pounds, no suspension modification. They're just landing, bottoming out, breaking seats. Yeah. And that's what they did. And then, yeah. That's nuts. Well, the craziest is have you ever watched um, uh, Road Warrior with the commentary on? No, no. It's pretty enlightening. Uh, If you remember uh, at the end of Road Warrior, there's a huge stunt with a semi truck. Mm hmm. And they were shooting that movie in the dead middle of Australia, right? So they were out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And they knew that that stunt was had such a high probability of the stunt man getting hurt that they made him prep for surgery before the stunt. Uh-huh. You know how you have you can't eat for whatever it is oh, twenty four yeah, yeah. hours. You have to and fast. Yeah. So he was fully prepped to go straight to surgery Holy after shit. that accident. And then they also say, and we went through it frame by frame. As that truck is crashing, a guy on a motorcycle, like T-Bone something, he's supposed to fly over that. Mm-hmm. And, and they they miscalculated that. And the guy just flew full body, legs into the side of the semi. And if you go frame by frame, you just watch this guy. Right. This guy's legs just break. Wow. Yeah. Holy jeez. Yeah, they were doing things. In fact, I watched this Hell Needham documentary once. And uh, Ooh, I haven't it, heard of that. It was a real cheap one. It was like not know, tw- 20 best stunts. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was like a real shitty one that gotcha. was on like uh, <clears throat> it was not an HBO documentary. Gotcha. But they were talking about the stunt in uh, Cannonball Run mm-hmm. where the dually pickup truck jumps over the train. Yep. Like so trains flying down the tracks. And then as luck would have it, there's a couple of the, the cars that are not full box cars uh-huh. or flatbed uh, train cars. And this, they jump a dually over this moving train. Yeah. In that little gap. Yep. I remember that. And they're interviewing Hal Needham and they said like, you know, what was the preparation for that? And he goes, well, we just all knew we had to get it right. Or the next day we were going to be walking with our heads hung low at a funeral. And I was like, (laughs) wait, those were the options. Like we get it right or we're going to this guy's funeral. And you guys then did it. Uh I I think it's changed so much. Oh, for sure. Because I'm really involved with the stunt team when I'm directing yeah. a movie, and all those guys are my friends. That's how they we even kind of came to do the movies together. Um, yeah, and they're just they're crazy mm-hmm. uh, safe now. Yeah, I imagine so much preparation goes into everything. Yes, and even you know, I think I know that stuff, but I'll be about to do something, and they'll come over and they'll like check my harness, and they're like, "Hey, dum dum, you gotta yeah. cinch the bottom, leave the top loose. That's how you break your back." You know, like just right. they know they know what they're doing now. Is jumping a car one of the most fun things ever? Um, it's pretty <laughs> awesome. It's definitely awesome. But I hate I, to go ten year old kid on you, but uh, yeah. Uh, oh, there was so much like that. That movie Hit and Run was just me living out my smoking yeah. the bandit fantasy. That's all it was. It right. was like a Sundance version of smoking the bandit. Uh-huh. <laughs> and what was a, a, a really stupid decision I made uh, before that stunt happened was uh, we're in a barn in my off road race car. Mm-hmm. And then we drive through the barn door. Yeah, yeah. And on the other side, we jump these cars. And I was like, listen, I don't want to cheat. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to show this whole thing in one take. Yeah. 
And my stunt coordinator is like, you're never going to use this whole thing in one take, and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, I want to use it in one take. Right. <laughs> so my wife and I are in, and Kristen's really in the car too. Yeah. I had hired her stunt her stunt double that day, and she goes, why is, uh, why is my stunt double here? I'm like, because we're doing the car jump today. She was into it, huh? And she goes, well, why can't I be in the car? And I'm like, I don't know. If it goes wrong, I don't want you to break. I don't want to, you know, be on my shoulders that your back's broken. Right. And she goes, well, that means your back could break too. And I, I don't want to push you around in a wheelchair the rest of my life. Like if you're going to break <laughs> your back, I want to break mine. Well, both just get pushed around in wheelchairs. Right. And I was like, That's pretty sweet. sound logic. <laughs> so she was in the car too. So we're in the, in the barn and you have to imagine the difference in light mm-hmm. inside the barn. The barn's dark. Yeah. And then soon as we crash through this real barn door, it's just bright high noon sun. Mm-hmm. And then the ramps are, you know, 18 inches wide. So I got to hit those ramps. Yeah. Uh, it was very stressful. Yeah. Because of my 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 eyes having to adjust mm-hmm. within 20 feet. Right. So I make sure I hit those ramps. Yeah. I didn't need to do any of that. I could have just started with the barn door open. Right. We could have filmed the jump. Then we could have filmed me, dr- fly, you know, driving through the barn door. I didn't end up using it all in one take. My son <laughs> Cornier was completely right. Yeah, well. Uh, and so that was a total waste of time and, and risk. And how fast were you going? Not that fast. I bet 30. Oh, okay. Yeah. The ramp was quite steep. Yeah. Yeah. And I had jumped that car like that for fun many uh-huh. times. Just there were never any cars underneath. And have you um, done like legit car racing and stuff too? Yes. It, like, yes. That how? that that car that that off road car in that movie was my real off road race car that I raced. Okay. In de- desert racing, like you know, a few hundred miles wow. kind of racing. So it, you do that stuff. Uh huh. Yeah. And then I also raced in this um, series called the Super Trofeo series where mm-hmm. it's all uh, dead equal Lamborghinis and it's <laughs> oh in God. the American Le Mans series. <laughs> and I did that for a season. Wow. Yeah. So you're uh, in. I love it. I love it so much. Uh, I ha- I stopped the after the, the year on the Super Trofeo because my daughter was, I want to say, like two. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time she'd ever gotten really um, – sick or she had like the flu or she, you know, she had a temperature and she yeah. was just really snuggly. And it was the day of a race in Fontana. And I was like snuggling her and I'm like, I got to get on the road to go to Fontana, mm-hmm. but she really wants to snuggle. Right. And then the whole ride to Fontana, I'm like. Feeling like shit. How many trophies do you need? <laughs> like, what's the number your ego's after? Yeah. Like, when do we know we're done with this? Yeah. Because you at least need to know. Yeah. Because <laughs> this could just go on forever. Right. What are you chasing? Yeah, exactly. Like, is, is it 20 trophies? Mm. Will that make you feel like a man? Yeah. So I, I, <laughs> I decided that I was done with it. and But now that was three years ago and I'm now recently feeling like I'm I'm ready again. Yeah, to, <laughs> to, to race. Well, yeah. and there's- I a- raced- um, I raced a month and a half ago in the UTV World Championship uh-huh. in, in Laughlin, Nevada. Is it fun? Uh, it was very violent. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. It, it was an incredibly rough off-road uh-huh. course, and I was used to racing a full-size like one car, the car that was in the movie, mm-hmm. and this was in a Polaris Razor, mm-hmm. which is indestructible. They're awesome, but it was just a lot more violent inside than. Uh, and it's a hundred and fifty mile race, so my neck was just shot. Yeah, I, yeah. By the end That's of it, I was grueling. like, I'm forty three. Do I right. again? Was my ego <laughs> need this? Because the recovery, you know, was a few days. You have to train for that. I did not train for that, <laughs> but you should. <laughs> yeah, you should probably. Yeah, a little bit. Just like physically, I had shot the night before mm-hmm. till ten thirty at night. Right. 
like two blocks over mm-hmm. on this Netflix show. Then got in the car, then drove to Laughlin, Nevada. Yeah. Then had to check into a hotel that had no clean rooms. So by the time I got into my hotel room, it was 4 a.m. And then I had to wake up at 8 a.m. Oh and God. go race. Yeah. And it was 100 degrees in the desert. Uh-huh. There's a lot of thing, variables that made it. Yeah. Uh, I could have been set up to enjoy it more than I did. Wow. Yeah. See, I'm not a car guy. No. Even even having loved uh, Smoking the Bandit. Yeah. I mean, trust me, if I saw like that Trans Am ride uh-huh. down the street, I would, you know, things would happen in my body. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, cortisol or, and or oxytocin. <laughs> yeah. You'd have a but adrenal never, dump. <laughs> but I've never been into, um, although it did have a Plymouth Valiant style-wise, uh-huh, that was no, a cool car. Yeah, yeah. But I was never into like driving fast. You weren't a gear. Probably because, yeah, I've never done it. Uh-huh. I imagine if someone ever took me out to the Porsche track in Atlanta. Yeah. I would probably. Well, you have one of the best tracks in the world. Road Atlanta is an amazing yeah. racetrack. Like yeah, Road Atlanta. That's sort of the old school in the country. One. Yeah, um, you know, I worked for General Motors for years too, for, for oh, really? fourteen years, and I used we used to do a lot of car shows at Road Atlanta, and so oh, we cool. would stay around Lake Lanier, and uh-huh. so a lot of my, uh, or you know, my teenage years and early twenties were spent around there doing shows. Yeah, what did he, you do for them? We would throw these gigantic events for journalists. So let's say the new Corvette came out. Mm-hmm. Six months before it hit the showrooms, we'd invite everyone to road, you know, Atlanta, mm-hmm. put them up for a week. They'd have meals, they'd have transportation, and then during the day they'd be on the track. There'd be the full track, then there'd be autocross track, and then maybe yeah. we'd have like an off-road event in the infield, mm-hmm. and just let all the automotive journalists drive everything, and then they write stories about it. And GM gets a bunch of free press, basically. That's a cool gig for you at the time, I guess. Dream job, yeah. yeah from fourteen to twenty-eight. That's I just. Oh, that's great. Yeah. We are, you're on the road nonstop, all my friends, uh, and you're driving uh-huh. super cool cars on racetracks. So you didn't get into acting till after that? Well, no. Um, I moved to L.A. when I was 20. Mm-hmm. So from 20 to 28, I was pursuing acting. Also went to UCLA and was going through the groundlings and becoming a groundling. I was doing all that stuff. Uh, and then uh, I would go away for like 10 days at a time, do gotcha. a show, come back. And, and it was a great way for me to kind of – not have to have a day-to-day job. Uh-huh. I would just work a ton in these very concise periods of time, you know, because right. when I would do a show, you'd work like 110 hours a week. Right. Yeah. So that was- Interesting. So you had your, your feet in two pools. I did. I for did. a while. And I'm not a very <clears throat> spiritual person or a, the secret person, but I will say <clears throat> I decided to quit doing that. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, I was just like- this is making it too easy for me. I'm going to quit doing this. And right as I was running completely out of money. To force uh, your hand as an actor, you think? I mean, now in retrospect, uh-huh. I think maybe that was it. Uh, but yeah, maybe once or twice I had been out on a car show and some opportunity had come up that I was out of town for. I think that's what motivated it. But um, yeah, I quit that. And then I was, it was r- right leading up to Christmas and I, I actually had no money to buy Christmas presents for anyone. I was like, okay. We're at zero. <laughs> like right. It's getting serious. And then I got punked like that week, maybe. And that was the first big gig. That was gig. the first, yeah, kind of acting job I ever got uh-huh. after eight years of auditioning. And so once I got that, then, think, you know, I've worked pretty consistently for the last, yeah. I guess, 15 years or something it's been. When, what did, um, how did acting come about? Like, I know in Michigan, you didn't seem like <clears throat> a possibility. Where was that born? I wanted to do comedy. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do stand up. I was like, I think I'm funny. Uh, I'm certainly in trouble a lot at school. I think I could parlay this into <laughs> stand-up. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and I was a writer. I always wrote. I wanted to, you know, 
I wrote a book of short stories by, when I was 19. I tried to get published. Like I, I also very much wanted to be a writer. So the idea of, of writing a stand-up routine appealed mm-hmm. to me and all this. And I just was too scared to do it in Detroit. I'm like, I can't yeah. do it. I mentioned that's it, a rough go. Yeah. And I, I didn't I didn't end up doing stand-up until way later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I go, if I move all the way to California, there's no way I'm going to puss out and not do this. Mm-hmm. And then I got out here and I was like, no, t- still too scary. Mm-hmm. So I knew the Groundlings did sketch comedy and improv. And I thought, well, God, if I could be up there on stage with other people, that might lessen the, the yeah. fear of it all. And so I did that. And then once I started doing that, I just loved sketch comedy. Yeah. I loved improv. And I really fell in love with acting. Like I started, you know, uh, I went from having never acted to having act often. And I really liked it. And then uh, and then punk happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would be auditioning for like commercials and stuff that whole eight years. But I was quite bad at that. Um, but what's funny is <clears throat> about, I don't know, maybe six years ago, mm-hmm. I go, my God, you still never did it. You didn't do stand up. You came all the way out here. For some reason, I thought it. you had. No? No. And I'm like, I'm going to go Are do it. Are you going to do it? No, I did it. Oh, you did? So about six years ago, I started doing stand-up, and I did it for maybe two years. Really? Yeah, and I That's performed probably a I lot thinking. around L.A., and yeah. I, I did shows in Vegas and stuff. And um, I did end up really loving it, but it's it's crazy how scary it still remained. Yeah. And in fact, that story I just told you about the jump in the car out of the barn. Mm-hmm. My stunt coordinator, Steve DeCastro, who's a great friend of mine, right before action, he dips his head in the car and he's like, how are you feeling? And I go, good. He goes, but like out of 10, what's your fear level? And I go, okay, out of 10, if stand up is a 10, Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm at a four right now. Like that's (laughs) the disparity between, I'd rather jump a car over cars all day long than have to walk out on a stage and you got to stay there for 20 minutes, whether it goes good or bad. Yeah. Yeah, just that, by far the scariest thing for me is that is stand up. Yeah, it's funny because <clears throat> when Josh and I do our live shows now, we get up in front of a thousand people, and the first ten or fifteen minutes is us almost doing like a dual stand up. Sure, just city stuff and local flavor stuff, and uh-huh. doing the room work. Yeah, and um, but there there are people that love us uh-huh. and would laugh at anything that we say. Sure, um, not anything we say, but. It's a it's a rabid audience. Yeah, yeah. But I can't imagine, and I'm, I don't get nervous fans, at all. To say the least, they're or, they've yeah. already declared their fans, right? Of you guys. And yeah. that is a completely different thing. Like I don't get nervous at all about doing that, but I cannot imagine. And I've been writing a stand up act for 15 years. Uh huh. But I can't imagine going up in front of a room full of strangers and doing yes. that. Well, I have a similar experience as you, which is I started going around a lot to do Q and As for movies I was mm-hmm. in, and I found that I loved that. Yeah. There's nothing I enjoy more. Than sitting like in a movie theater with people doing a Q and A, yeah, I could do that, that for two hours. Uh-huh. I love just talking to people and yeah. hearing questions and stuff. And that is that's not as scary for me, mm-hmm. and, and I just love it. So I'd have those experiences, and I would think, oh no, you can entertain a group of a hundred people for yeah. a while. Uh, but yeah, something clicks when you go out there and you're like, oh, I'm going to move through this beat, this beat. Right. Beat. And if and if that beat doesn't work, then I I really I don't have a foundation for the rest of this thing. Yeah. You know? I can't imagine that it's got to get in your head if something bombs uh-huh. or the joke bombs, but you can't, you can't do that. Right. Right. And you can't well, get no, in your you head can. about you it. You got to go out there and you got to go, this is the story I would like to hear as an audience member. And right. I just am going to tell that Yeah. in, you know, if it goes my way, great. If it doesn't, it's still the story I wanted to tell yeah. or whatever, however you trick your brain into not being so nervous about it. Um, 
But yeah, those um, to your point about people, they're going to laugh at you because they like you. Mm-hmm. I think it's maybe Seinfeld I heard on Howard Stern saying it's a double edged sword as a comedian yeah. to walk out there. Like when Seinfeld walks out there, he's going to get three minutes of laugh- laughing. Mm-hmm. And that's the residual, hey, we love you. Right. But then it's going to flip. And it's like when that passes, now, yeah. you got to deliver. You almost got to deliver more. Yeah. So I think in a weird way, when I started doing it around L.A., I think a lot of – or maybe this is in my head. Again, I already proved that I'm not a very objective evaluator of how people feel about me. But <laughs> I, uh, I'd i go out there and sometimes I would feel like people would be thinking – wait, this dude got to get on a show with Sarah Silverman, mm-hmm. but he's not even a comic. Uh, you, you know, I, I felt like the comedy snobs in LA, yeah. at least half of them were, were definitely gutting for me to eat shit. I, I think it was like- sure you're right. Some some were excited I was there and others were like, yeah. this is bullshit. He didn't earn this. Yeah, there's a bit of a, mm-hmm. um, I've, I've met a lot of the comedy types out here and most of them are great people, but yeah. I have noticed a bit of like, Stay in your lane. Yes, absolutely. Type of thing. Like yeah. I've been trying to do this. <laughs> and especially as you, like someone with so much notoriety, like, hey, I'm going to do stand-up now. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure yeah. there was a lot of uh, cynicism there. And, and again, maybe it was just completely in my head. But, you know, I, I guess you can only see the world as good as you see the world. So mm-hmm. I, I'm a dick sometimes. I'm cynical. I'm like, why is this guy doing this? Or right. why, you know, so because I'm guilty of that, I, of course, I assume other people sure. are that way because I assume that everyone's kind of the same scumbag I am on some level, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like my example just occurred to me the other day was uh, I'm regularly getting frustrated in traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, when someone cuts me off, I go straight to this guy's selfish. He's mm-hmm. arrogant. He's blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Kristen goes straight to, which is correct, is it's probably situational. Right. Either he wasn't paying attention and he ran out of lane or he's on his way to help his kid at school, whatever it is. Right. Yeah. And I realized the reason she does that is that she's never cut anyone off trying to get ahead. Uh-huh. So how could she even conceive that someone's doing that? Well, I have. I'm a dick. I, I've, <laughs> I've tried to take what's not mine. You know, I try to get more than I'm entitled to. Yeah. So, of course, I assume the guy who just cut me off is doing the same thing I'm doing. Cause, yeah. Because, you know, I don't think I'm a monster. Right. But I do it. Yeah. One thing that I try to do now as far as day-to-day goes is I'm a little bit like you as far as – um you know, what an asshole, like that person, even (laughs) not even traffic, just day to day. And I try and think of now as an adult with a child, I try and think what, what's happening to them that Mm -hmm, day. mm -hmm. Like there's probably a story behind why that person was so rude or what happened. Yeah. And they're just not like just wired that way. Yes. But some people are wired that way. (laughs) Sure. I think everyone's, yeah, we're half, we're right half the time, both Kristen and I. Yeah. But it's a better way to go through life, assuming the best. For her, because by the way, and this is what kind of got me off of my road rage is that only person losing in the scenario is me. Yeah, I'm the one with the adrenaline dump and the cortisol dump, and Mm -hmm. I'm the one that's mad for nine minutes after that interaction, not the other person. No, it's like I'm drinking poison, wishing that enemy would die. More mad. Yeah, so I'm losing. (laughs) You know. Yeah. You got to have a system for that, that though. The the dots of like, oh, even if I got out and beat this guy to death on the side of the road. Yeah. I'm going to pay a heavy price for that. Right. Just biologically. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's but not healthy. You have to have a system though. You can't just I turn do. that off. That's right. And I have a system. So I'll start paying attention to a guy who mm-hmm. I think is driving like an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I'm probably the worst offender of this. I'm sure <laughs> if I was driving by myself, I would want to run me off the road. So I acknowledge that. Uh-huh. 
But I start monitoring some guy, right? Because I know I'm, what you I'm mean. The sheriff, like yeah. I like, see oh, that I guy. See him switching lanes behind me. I did the same thing, man. And now I decide I'm going to block this lane. Like, uh, now I'm actively <laughs> policing the, the roadway, and I'll I'll feel myself start to do all that, mm-hmm. and I force myself to read the license plate number of the car in front of me. Oh. And so I read that license plate number and then I force myself to try to find another license plate number. And I just try to, uh, I try to redirect my focus because I, I just start obsessing about this guy behind me. By the way, it's 99% of the time a guy and not a woman sure. says a lot already. Yes. Yeah. We're the worst. Um, so yeah, if I can, I can, I just force myself to concentrate on something else. It, it will go away. There's a science to that. I would imagine. Something, did, did you create that or did someone? That was something I came up with. Yeah. Interesting. And that little redirect is what kind of gets you off that path. Yes. And so now, again, all these things, and this is something I learned through sobriety, is a lot of these things that feel very unnatural when you take contrary action, mm-hmm. they are unnatural for a while, but your your brain is habitual by nature. So yeah. the more you th- do things, you can make things instinctual to yourself mm-hmm. just through repetition. Sure. So now when I, I I just, every time that happens, I'm getting quicker and quicker and quicker at just looking at a license plate and and making myself read the numbers out Mm -hmm. loud. And it's just now getting more effortless. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you, man. Thank you so much. That's inspiring. (laughs) Good, good. And that's what you're doing on your show too, I think. Yeah, I think. I think like you're making a difference. I can't not, uh, yeah, I can't. I'm only so interested in someone winning an Emmy or something. Yeah. You know, which is very little. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we need to get into Raising Arizona. Yeah, let's do that. Um, when I asked you uh, about doing this, you you sent along uh, Thief or Raising Arizona, the great yeah. James Caan movie. Uh, you've seen it? Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot of people have seen it. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, I think I saw it, not when it came out, because it's- wasn't It was like, 81 or something. Yeah. I would yeah. have been like 10 years old. Uh-huh. But um, I saw it later on, like I think like in college. Really good movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, since you were kind enough to give me the choice, Raising Arizona is a movie that is part of my DNA. Yes. Uh, I have seen it so many times. It's almost like, that movie's almost like um, being into Apple before there was an Apple. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like an identity to love, to love that movie. When I was younger, like I could... I feel like I could separate the the wheat from the chaff. Is mm-hmm. that the expression? Like if I if I met a group of ten people and I could isolate the three that loved <laughs> right. raising Arizona, <laughs> yeah. I, I knew we would be good. Yeah, yeah, totally. But uh, before we move on from, from Thief, I just want to uh, urge people to see it. It's it's one of Michael Mann's first movies, if not yeah. his first movie, and it's where he established that crazy weird genre that's onto himself with this really uh-huh. surreal music and this yeah. beautifully shot like crime sequences mm-hmm. it's it's just it's one of the most unique movies especially in the context of what was being made in that that time just yeah like, that opening scene where he's cracking that safe oh yeah i'm just like in the in its tangerine dream they did uh-huh. the soundtrack yeah yeah it's so i i just nothing no no moment in the movie makes me feel like that opening scene yeah yeah it's just so great okay so that's enough about thief uh i love a good heist movie too i'm a yes. sucker for a good heist movie. and if you love heat Heat is almost the exact same movie as Thief. It truly is the same movie, down to the cars they drive. I never noticed that. James Caan drives an 82 Cadillac Eldorado, which was the coolest Cadillac you could drive in 82. Right. The, the sedans weren't cool. That two-door was cool. Um, and then our hero in Heat drives a 92 or 3 Cadillac STS, which was the coolest Cadillac, both mm-hmm. black. Uh, his partner, James Belushi, mm-hmm. or John Belushi, J- James, James Belushi, yeah. In, in Thief was driving an 81 or 82 Corvette. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Val Kilmer was driving uh, a yeah. 90 Corvette. It's like even the cars were the same. Huh. Yeah. That had to be intentional. 
I wonder. He's a big car nut. Who, uh, Michael Mann? Yeah, he's a big gearhead. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sorry. All right, so Raising Arizona, Arizona 1987. Uh, my first experience seeing this movie was in the theater. Well, wow. We had a, uh, a 99 cent theater near us that uh, we would go to um, after church. I grew up a little church boy. Uh-huh. So after like youth group, we would all like pile in and go to these 99 cent movies, just no matter what was playing. And I had not heard of the Coen brothers at the time, of course. Right. Um, because Blood Simple was their only other film. Yeah. And this movie changed the way, literally changed the way I looked at movies. Uh-huh. Me and too. And comedy especially. Mm-hmm. I had never seen anything like it. Yeah. And it just blew me away at uh, 16 years old. Uh-huh. Uh, just a big sea change for me. Yeah. I did not see it in the theater. I wish I had. Mm-hmm. Um, I discovered it later on TV. And in fact, I was flicking through the stations and it started the moment H.I. goes into the grocery store or goes into the convenience store to steal the Huggies. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what this movie is, but I love Nick Cage as a yeah. kid. And so I start watching it. And that sequence to this day is the best set piece I've ever seen in my life, where yeah. he goes to steal the Huggies and the guy pulls the gun on him. Then she picks him up. Then oh. they run through a grocery store and they're chased by the dogs. And to exactly what you're saying, it was the first time where I thought, this is really different. This yeah. is not – something is different here about this movie and what is it? And that's the first time I got kind of aware of the mechanics of making a movie. Mm-hmm. You know, like I didn't know it at the time, but they shot that whole movie, I think, on like an 18 mil lens or something. Some super wide lens. Yeah. They never had a long lens and they always brought the camera close to everybody, moved the camera back. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, by the way, on Miller's Crossing, there's a great extra on the DVD where Barry Sonnenfeld, who shot that movie, yeah, gives a one. tutorial on being a DP. He gives uh-huh. like a 20-minute explanation of how you shoot movies. And yeah. It's invaluable if you ever oh, wow. want to watch movies. But he, he goes a lot into how they decided to shoot Raising Arizona and um, and points out these different scenes in there that are, are pretty unique. Yeah. But yeah, I just I, – I started thinking – Huh, this is very mindful. Like this whole thing is is very specific mm-hmm. and and they've they've um constructed this movie differently than any movie I've ever seen. Yeah. And it got me thinking about that stuff. Yeah, I mean I had never seen comedy like this. Um and it really part of it was like it was it was screwball in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. But then the dialogue was so different than anything I had heard. Yes. Which apparently they used the Bible as a big reference. Oh, really? For like... That makes sense. You know, the sort of these and thous and this uh-huh. sort of flowery, uh, even though like he's a literally lives in a trailer, like an Airstream. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, there out, was an the incongruity with the way they all spoke, with John Goodman's character, the way he spoke. Yeah, he was so lofty. Yeah, which was great. <laughs> yeah, you know, they Aaron literally died. bust out through like a sewer pipe, I guess. <laughs> yes. And everyone's so polite, right? They're, he's calling her ma'am the whole uh, time. Yeah. <laughs> Why aren't you breastfeeding him? <laughs> but yeah, I think the first thing that kind of ropes, unless you saw it in, in the order I did, which is I just saw that sequence. And I'm like, what movie is this? And then I later figured out what the, that movie was called. And then I watched it from beginning to yeah. end. And I do think the first bit of bait is the dialogue. Yeah. Like right out of the gates, right? There's When he's sitting in the jail cell and the guy's yeah. explaining how he made crawdads. Oh, man. It's just what a bizarre conversation. It was so weird. Yeah. You ate sand? <laughs> you ate what? We ate sand. <laughs> Yates sand. <laughs> well, it it just starts out the energy. Um, I mean, that whole opening sequence is eleven minutes before they get to that title sequence. Uh huh. And you hear the tickling of the banjo throughout, and then the yodel comes in at eleven minutes in, which is 
I mean, it's only a 94 minute movie. So that's a big chunk of the movie is just that big, long opening sequence to establish everything. Yeah. So right away, they're like breaking the structure that you're so used to. Yeah. It's like, it's already, you're trying to file this thing into your head. Like, uh-huh. is it, you know, is it Caddyshack? Is it, you're right. comparing to other comedies and you're like, it's just not fitting. I can't yeah. find a category for this movie. Yeah. Especially in 1987. Yeah. The state of comedy and where it was, it was nothing like this. And it just starts with so much momentum. Yeah. That 11 minutes, you know, just this long montage where you're learning everything about them and they're perfectly ex- establishing the tone, mm-hmm. like right from the very beginning. Holly Hunter's so damn brilliant, too. She's great. Yeah. Yeah. One of the um, interview after this is uh, Broadcast News. Oh, which is yeah. a great movie. And really Holly great. Hunter's just, she's flawless. Yep. And Nick Cage, he was 23 years old. Oh, he was? When he made this movie. I mean, it's just so funny now in my mid to late 40s, like, that's just like a child. Yes. It seems like. Yes. And you know, the, 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 like, kind of Hollywood lore of that whole thing is that they did not get along. You know that part of it? I think I read the, the Coen brothers and Nick yes, Cage. Yes, that was a bad fit. Yeah, because they're very specific. Like, every, every, you know, and you betcha in Fargo is written. Right. Very specifically. Yeah, and they knew exactly how they wanted to shoot it, right? Yeah. So that when when a director has that specific of a game plan visually, your options as an actor start diminishing because you're going to have to stand here, then you're going to have to jump there, then you got to turn 80 degrees, mm-hmm. you got to look at this camera, right? It starts getting really mechanical. Right. And I think Nick Cage was fighting that. Yeah. Um, but I'd known for years that that they had not gotten along, right? Yeah, He's one of the I only heard. guys to never reappear in one of their movies. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I heard later, I don't know where I heard him interviewed, but he said he made a pretty good point, which is, yes, I was really difficult on that movie. Mm-hmm. But what everyone after me had the advantage of that I didn't have the advantage of is they hadn't made Raising Arizona yet. Right. They had made Blood Simple. Yep. And which it was a good movie. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like, oh, here's the new Cecil B. DeMille. Right. So they were asking me to do a lot of weird stuff that felt you know, not instinctual to yeah. me. And I fought it. These guys that no one's heard of. Yes. But everyone since that movie, you go yeah. there and you go, yeah, tell me where to stand. Tell me where to look. Right. I trust you. I know this is going to be the yeah, best yeah. thing I'm ever in. That's a very good point, actually. Yeah. So I totally can sympathize with why it wasn't, it didn't go well. What about, I mean. I guess he also, and you can kind of see bits of it still uh-huh. in the movie, but he wanted his character to have this huge preoccupation with time. Okay. So he had a watch, and I guess mm-hmm. he was constantly checking his watch <laughs> really? like in every single scene. Uh-huh. This is just what I've heard. I mean, uh-huh. I don't know if this is true or not. Um, but it was just driving them nuts that he couldn't get <laughs> off this whole his whole preoccupation with time. And but there's a couple. Once I heard that and I watched, I was like, "Oh, there's still some snuff." So you're through. looking for it, yeah, yeah. That they didn't cut out. In fact, um, I, I I I blatantly stole from that movie. My favorite fight scene is them in the trailer. It's the best. It's the best fight scene it's ever. Bananas. And our chips schedule, when we shot that, it was very run and gun. We Mm -hmm. didn't have as many days as you would normally have for an action movie. But as luck would have it, we had this rain cover set. And I knew I was going to be in this house for two days, which was way more time than we ever got. Mm -hmm. And it was just supposed to be a fight. And I said, wait, we actually have some time here. Mm -hmm. Like, let's all watch that fight scene about 40 times this weekend. (laughs) And then let's, let's really map out one that's on par with that. Yes. And so I did my best to do that in one of these fight scenes and ships. It was really fun to try to 
think of it in, in their the way they thought of it. Well, it's in that fight scene is um, between John Goodman and Nick Cage is uh, it's so like I remember seeing it when I was 16. It's so bananas. Uh-huh. So many little things with like him scraping the knuckles on the ceiling. On a popcorn ceiling. <laughs> Which trailers don't even have popcorn ceilings. Well, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> they have the cardboard that's painted. Yeah. yeah. So and then you, and then like ramming his elbow through the window like, yes. and then punching through the drywall. <laughs> through the drywall. It's just like nothing I'd ever seen before. And then he, he picks him up and throws him through the wall. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's it's the funnest fight scene ever, and all those great uh, first person perspective shots, like when he's spinning him around the room. Yeah, yes, it's just it's just off the hook crazy. Yeah, really, really inventive. I I would like to know if they were had they seen a fight scene they were trying to do their know, version man. of or something because it really not there hadn't been I had never seen one like that. No, I, sure. I I mean it, it seems like you can only think of it as pure Coen Brothers now. Yeah. Yeah. But at the time, yeah, they were they were young. And when you're watching a movie, isn't it funny? Uh, when I when I watch a movie, I'm like right out of the gates, probably because I've seen too many movies now. I'm basically as the movie's starting, I'm starting to compile uh, one of two things: either red flags mm-hmm. or ooh, that was original, right? And to me, the, a movie now, I just evaluate it by like how yeah. many red flags versus how, how many really original things that I see. Yeah, which is hard these days. It is. But when they show the warthog from hell and they say he was particularly hard on the littler things, right. yeah. and he just <laughs> shoots a- Like an iguana? A, yeah, he shoots a lizard <laughs> off of a, of a rock for no reason. He yeah. somehow saw it on his motorcycle and decided to kill it while driving by. Yeah, and he hand grenades a bunny. A bunny, <laughs> And that that starts, I believe, the Cohen's trend, which is why my wife doesn't love their movies of uh, animal cruelty. Uh huh. And so many of their movies, if you notice, there's little things. Well, they were they will kill an animal. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, they do a great job of exploiting violence for comedy. Yeah. Which is not a lot of people that do it well. Like I think Martin Scorsese, obviously. Yeah. There's so many of those gruesomely violent scenes are really hysterical. Yeah, Mean Streets, I remember, uh-huh. had a pretty funny pool room beatdown scene. Yeah, and my, my, I remember my dad and I seeing, uh, uh, not Casino, Goodfellas yeah. together in the movie theater. And when they grabbed the, the poor mailman and just started beating the shit out of the guy and they yeah. slam his head in the pizza oven, they're slamming the door yeah. and said, don't you bring any more mail to this kid's house. My dad and I were belly laughing, screaming. Right. And it, you know, it was very polarizing. Half the audience was like mortified and then half of yeah, us like, were dying laughing. Why are these psychos laughing? <laughs> Uh, another one of my favorite scenes earlier in Raising Arizona, too, is the great scene with uh, Trey Wilson uh, after the baby is kidnapped. Um, when he's, he's talking to the cops? Yeah, when he's talking to the cops. Just yeah. such a classic scene. I, I don't know. They had Yodas and shit on them. <laughs> I thought that was like, I'd never heard dialogue like that. It was the funniest scene to me. Yeah. Would Unpaid- you buy furniture from unpainted Huffines? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the great lines. And he's just so, so great in that movie. Yes. And you know, Christian Dior. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like so many little lines like that peppered throughout. Uh-huh. And and yeah, I guess now when you say that it does make me think that that is where I I've stole it from when I've made movies I've tried like my just my 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 guideline is everyone's got to play this fucking dead sincere yeah. like the, from the bottom of your heart this is the most serious thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, him in that scene, he's yeah. playing it like his kid was really abducted. Yeah. There's no comedy in it. And oh, yeah. then it's hysterical. Yeah. Yeah. No leads. <laughs> so great. And I, I didn't see him a whole lot. I know he's a character actor that's done some other stuff, but 
to me, he exists as as Nathan Arizona. Yeah. He also was a admiral in a movie he's played maybe a lot. Was yeah, he in he War seems, Games or something? As the, like, maybe. Lead? He seems like a, a general type. In yeah, movies, yeah, yeah. For sure. Uh, and then um, one of my other favorite sequences is the uh, when Francis McDormand and uh, Dot and Glenn show up. Uh-huh. It's such yes. a great, that whole sequence is great. Yes. All those crazy kids. and Yeah. As in, what does he say when they're out by the hole? They're, they're out in the barbecue, I guess. Mm-hmm. And he's like, uh, as in two swing, as in Dot and I are swingers. <laughs> and then he punches them. And then oh, he's yeah. clearly punched him like 40 feet yeah, away from great. the camera angle. Uh-huh. He's like, keep your hands off my damn wife. <laughs> well, and like and, little kids writing fart on the wall. Yeah. And Holly and uh, Francis McDormand is so great in that role, oh, too. Yeah. And that's the, I know she was in Blood Simple, which I saw later, but. That was my introduction to Holly Hunter as Dot, and uh, she's just so great. Yes. Yeah. So funny. Yeah. Did you get your dip shot? You got to <laughs> get your dip shot. Have you worked but with he her? he goes, what do you say? Buford's smart as hell. He <laughs> knows his ABCs and everything, and then he just, he goes, hit the deck, and he chucks a handful of M&Ms yeah. across someone's living room, and it hits the wall. <laughs> oh, it's so great. <laughs> and that guy, um, God, what's his name? Oh, yeah. He's hysterical. Glenn, Sam McMurray. Yeah. He's so good in that. I'm so glad you printed out all the names. Yeah, because people like that, don't it. they don't get their due. Yeah. Uh, of course, William Forsyth is the other. Uh, uh, the other bad guy. Gail and uh, I can't remember the other. Yeah, the brothers. Yeah. Um, Awfully good cornflakes, Mrs. <laughs> McDonough. <laughs> so we finally get to the robbery sequence that I guess was the first thing that you walked in on. Yeah. The first time you saw it, which is. It seems longer. I timed it out. It's only six minutes, but oh, really? It. I remember being in the theater and literally. I think it was the first time I had ever hurt from laughing. Uh huh. So consistently for so long, yes. I'd never laughed harder longer. I don't think. Yeah. In my life up until that point. Yeah, I would agree. The only thing I can think of ever seeing that rivals that is um, there was that. Tarantino thing, the four rooms and Rodriguez mm-hmm. had a room. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rodriguez's room. Uh, if you remember, it's, uh, I think, no misbehaving. Yeah. Like the the, the, the little kids. kids get left uh-huh. in the hotel room. And yeah. They find like a dead hooker under the bed <laughs> with a syringe in her uh-huh. heart. I remember laughing so hard. I was with my brother and we were both laughing so hard that we, we had, we were screaming at this point. And then I, my only thing I could do is I just stood up and I sat down and I stood up and I sat down and I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I couldn't let enough out by just laughing. Wow. And I just found myself standing and sitting and standing. So my brother was also standing and sitting like we couldn't contain what was happening. <laughs> oh, that's great. Your body just had to move. Yeah. But again, like um, Todd Phillips is, take i heard a great interview with him and he was talking about in his in his mind uh you can't have comedy without danger that's just mm. his own point of view on comedy mm-hmm. and that's why i think that rodriguez room sang, sang to me so much yeah. it's just like these two cute little kids in the worst scenario possible yeah. there's just this, all this inherent danger yeah and this movie too raising arizona's got like a lot of danger there's stakes uh-huh. there's oh, yeah. jail time you actually love these two as a couple yeah yeah and I so mean, that constant threat just elevates everything. Yeah, I think the, I mean, in that sequence alone, the robbery sequence, when he finally, you know, goes back to the dark side or whatever, I think there, are, I lost count. There's like probably a hundred or more 
gunshots <laughs> and the cops, you know, they're in the grocery store, just yeah, randomly I firing just, down the aisles. Yes. It's just crazy. Just unloading everywhere in public places. And it just keeps ramping up. It keeps building. Uh, like there's dogs, like yeah. 10 or 15 dogs at one point. In a dog point of view. Yeah, dog, right. yeah, exactly. And then finally, the uh, the funniest part of that whole thing still to me, and I laughed the other day when I watched it like it was the first time, is when he gets in the truck with the old guy. You got a panty on your head. Yeah. But when he jams on the brakes and he yes. goes flying through the uh, – the window's already shot out. Yes. Flying through the front of the truck. Lands in the grass oh and leaves God. like a divot yeah. from his fingers. And then he gets up and says, thank you. I have thought so many <laughs> times about how they actually shot that scene. Yeah. Like what the mechanics of that scene were that. It looks great. Gave me that visceral feeling mm-hmm. that I flew through a window. Like it's it just, they did it perfect. Yeah. I think part of it had to do with the sound design because it's so loud. Uh-huh. And then as soon as he flies through the window, you just hear like a. Yeah, yeah. Just like this dead quiet sort of <laughs> wind rushing. <laughs> Yes, but in my mind, I can see him absolutely leaving the truck, going through the whole window and landing. Of course, that I couldn't have seen that. Yeah. That can't be really shot. Yeah. Uh, but I guess now it would be done digitally. But yeah, they yeah, did of course. S- such an incredible job of with their point of view shots and everything to make you feel like you watched, you saw that. Well, and so many real people that also mark sort of the beginning of the Coen's use of non-actors uh, which they're very famous for now uh-huh. uh, in little small roles. Like um, an, another line that just always killed me was the old timer. Um, if you circular know, is funny. Yeah. Do these blow up into funny <laughs> shapes at all? No, unless round is funny. <laughs> oh, is that what he says? Round, yeah. yeah. And that line is <laughs> yeah. a perfectly written <laughs> joke. Well, which is it, young feller? <laughs> if I freeze, if I drop, I'm yeah, going to be in motion. That guy too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like these are not... Maybe that guy was. There was but, a point in my life where I knew these actually verbatim. Oh, yeah. I'm disappointed in myself right now that I've forgotten. No, I mean, I'm apple. sure if you sat down, like, you and I could probably <laughs> recite the whole movie. is funny. <laughs> I mean, it's just such a good line. <laughs> yeah. And, and just that Coen Brothers, um, that thing of going into a bank, everybody freeze, everybody drop. And, like, instead of just playing it straight, yeah. like, they add this whole other layer of comedy. <laughs> yes. And it, it just well, blows me away it, still. young feller? <laughs> if I drop, I'm going to be in motion. <laughs> well, and then, and then the, you know, where'd all the tellers go? Like, we're down here like you commanded. <laughs> so you told them to drop. Uh, and then we get to Randall Cobb is sort of peppered through. And finally, that sort of third act is when he comes in. Yes. As Randall Tex Cobb. Yeah. Uh, who was Some people a, don't know this about him, but he was a prize fighter. Yeah, he yeah. was a boxer. He was a boxer, and what he was most known for is he's kind of the guy they'd hire to build another rising star's right. career, but because he wouldn't go down. Right. He never won, but he just He had an wouldn't. iron chin. Yes, and, and I, I remember watching a little one-hour thing about him, and they were saying sometimes the fights, like he would sleep in the lawn next to the sign of the arena he was fighting in. Like <laughs> What? Yeah, he was just a real ragtag wow. dude. Yeah, they'd have to like go find him. and That's a weird thing to do. Yeah. I can't imagine you're in your best fighting shape after you've slept on the wa- the lawn of MGM Grand. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, I think he went, uh, very famously, I think he went 12 rounds with Larry Holmes at one point. Earlier in his career, yeah. 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 And yeah. was just known as a guy who could take any amount of punches thrown yeah. his way. Yeah. Very scary dude. Yeah. Great, great casting. Yeah. And I think the Coen brothers did not enjoy working with him. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I read a, a thing the other day that said 
it was from back then, but they said, yeah, I don't know if we're, you know, he's going to be on the call sheet anymore <laughs> uh-huh. moving forward. I wonder if drinking was involved with that. I don't know. Hmm. So what's your take? He did I mean, great though. Yeah. There are a lot of interpretations of that, of who he is in this movie, whether or not he is a, a representation of the other side of Nick Cage's character uh-huh. or whether or not he is his father mm. uh, because they have the same tattoo. Right. That is weird. Yeah. That's the thing, I guess, that makes it worth exploring. But, you know, in general, I don't believe people know why they make the choices they make. Right. I wish I did. Yeah. Like, you know, Bob Dylan, I think, admitted, you know, or maybe even Joan Baez said she'd read these lines of his and go, oh, my God, this is the most beautiful thing ever. Mm-hmm. He'd be writing a song. What does it mean? I don't know. Right. <laughs> so... Maybe they know. I don't right. know if they know. Yeah, you I think don't think they're on record. Like it may be like, one of those things. Like, does Tarantino really know what's in that suit suitcase? He says he does, right. but does he? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's a good point. So I don't know. When I when I don't think that the real answer's out there, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Yeah. Is that a letdown? No, not a. What do you not think at all. that character represents? I think I thought about it more when I was younger and watching this movie a lot. Uh huh. And I thought they were brothers that had been. Uh, Split apart at birth or something. Yeah. But the age does, it would be more likely that he's his father. Yeah. By the way, it blows my mind you say he was 23 during that. Because in my mind, he's like 35. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. I always just took that moment where he pulls his collar to the side and he sees that tattoo. Mm -hmm. That it was just um, a humanizing moment. Like I didn't think of it anything as more than just like. In this crazy, gnarly, impossible scenario, Mm -hmm. he just witnesses something that makes him realize like, oh, we're not too different. Or we're both, you know. Yeah, I like that It's just this weirdly humanizing moment Mm -hmm. in this crazy sequence, which defies all explanation. Uh, And he says he's sorry after he pulls the pin. Right. You know? Right. Because, Because they both clearly love Woody Woodpecker. Yeah. 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 And he- I think it's just weird. I, I just thought of it as like- a weird moment to recognize uh, someone who's trying to murder you has the same favorite thing as you. It's, that's just, I can see myself writing it just being pumped on that. Right. And maybe it not being any deeper than that. Like, you know, what if a guy was strangling me and the last thing he says is like, no, not that mother scratcher, Bill Parker. Right. And I go, oh, that's weird. We have the same favorite movie. I Normally I maybe have gotten right. along with this guy. Uh, yeah, the great M. Emmett Walsh. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yes. One of the great legendary character actors. Yes. And their ability to like just keep uh, paying things off. You know, mm-hmm. like every time they go to that machine shop, he's saying another crazy thing. Yeah. He's walking back right. off nine mile <laughs> with a sandwich in one hand and a fucking head in the other. <laughs> like, what story is he telling him? Yeah, yeah. I love them just dropping in on conversations uh-huh. in the middle of them. It's great. And he was great in Blood Simple. He has, It's one of the, the best last lines of a movie ever to me at the end of Blood Simple. What is he saying? It's, um, you know, it ends with he's on the other side of the door and gets shot. And so you don't see, they don't know who has been shot. Uh-huh. And he thinks it's it's the other guy. Um, the well, I can only think of him as Nick Bonacani from Cheers. Yes. Uh, Dan, uh, what's his face from yeah. Clueless 2? You're finding my big weakness. <laughs> Remembering names. Barely remember my own name. But he says something about, and he calls out the guy's name and says something to him. 
And in fact, it's M. Emmett Walsh. And he goes, if I see him, I'll give him the message. Uh-huh. And he slumps on the floor and dies. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah. Which is just a great last line. Yeah. I'd be curious if those guys, when they write Joel and Ethan, uh-huh. if they take ownership of one of the characters. Like, Oh, interesting. I feel like that'd be a fun way to write. I don't enjoy writing with other people, but if it, uh-huh. it, it seems like if you were that simpatico with your everything like they right. are, that you could enter writing these scenes going, mm, I'll be, yeah, I'll be Emmett, you know, I'll uh-huh. be that character. You be Nick Cage. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll focus on that voice. And uh-huh. every time we go to him, I'll, I'll, I'll do that, you know. So well, you kind of have like a real time dialogue if you both yeah. owned one of the two characters. I think they kind of, um, I've heard stories about them directing that they sort of divide and conquer that way. Yes. I've auditioned for them. Uh, for what? Uh, for the Caesar, Hal Caesar, mm-hmm. um, which I was so scared to do because I, I, the character was Swedish, uh, and I had never done a Swedish accent or anything. So I like went on YouTube and right. learned one. That's got to be intimidating. Yeah. And at first I just read for the casting director and then I'm assuming I did bad. It's a big swing, Swedish accent. I don't yeah. know how I did. And then I get called back and I auditioned for them, uh, Joel and Ethan. And, uh, you know, as I'm preparing to go in there, I'm, I'm just going, do not bring up Raising Arizona. They already know it's a good movie. You do not have to fucking do this. And I don't think they're like that. I don't think they're, they like talking a lot about that stuff from what I've heard. Yeah, I, I, I think they would find it to be self-indulgent. Or yeah. You know, like, I, yeah, they didn't strike me as the kind that needed my uh-huh. approval, whatever. So I'm just going, don't do that. Don't try to tell them, don't try to show them you're funny. Yeah. You know. All these different things. And then on accident, I said something funny, just out of nervousness, like uh-huh. while talking to them. And then one of them said- uh, And they laughed at you? They laughed. Oh, that's great. And one of them said, well, you clearly know comedy. And I was like, is that good or bad? Like, <laughs> I can see that going either way. Anyways, I auditioned for them. I left. I felt pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't hear anything for a long time. And then I got called back like, to read for them again. And now I had new sides. They sent out new mm-hmm. new uh, material for the audition. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So I got there, and by the way, I don't know which one of them is the one that speaks, but basically one of them speaks. He right. kind of deals with the actor. Uh-huh. So he's t- talking to me, and he said, he said, uh, we brought you back because after your first audition, we realized that scene wasn't as funny as it should be because mm-hmm. you know comedy, and it should have been funnier. And so uh, thank you for pointing that out, and we re- rewrote it. Oh, wow. And I said, thank my, well, my acting tends to be a magnifying glass for bad writing, so I'm glad I could assist. <laughs> and then I read again, and that went fine, and then they hired someone much bigger than me, which, fine. It was Who such a delight. That role in the movie? I don't even know. I don't. I saw that. Yeah, Channing Tatum was the guy who was the in sailor the scenes. Guy. He was directing. The uh-huh. Swedish guy was directing. Oh, oh I want to oh. say they hired a real Swedish guy or something. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. Regardless, I was pumped that they called me back sure. twice. That's a big victory. Yeah. And then, in fact, the other day I was thinking, because I have this, you know, I have occasionally have low self-esteem, and I'm like, if I had been in that movie, because that movie didn't do so hot financially, uh-huh. yeah. I would have actually thought it was my fault. I would have said, like, <laughs> God, you even have the ability to, like, take the Coen Brothers. Brothers movies. So I was almost, like, grateful that I, I couldn't put that in the I hate myself uh, filing cabinet oh, to draw man. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so the movie Raising Arizona ends with that great uh, extended voiceover uh, sequence, that dream sequence. 
Yes. Where he looks into the future. He sees himself. His sons are football players, right? Yeah. And uh, ends with that great line. I don't know. Maybe it was Utah, which is just such a funny Coen Brothers-y way to end a movie. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, it's so great. But we skipped over one scene that I also think is just outrageously funny. Which one? When John Goodman uh, and you just said his name. Yeah, yeah. uh, uh, Foresight. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, William Forsyth. William Forsyth. When they forgot the baby on the roof of the car. Oh, yeah. And they're punching the dashboard. John Goodman's (laughs) punching the dashboard and they're screaming. I don't think I'd ever seen a scene like that either. I just could not stop laughing. Yeah, yeah. I have to say if I have a single favorite moment in all Coen Brothers movies that made me laugh the very hardest is when um, in in, um, uh, Dude – uh, yeah, Lebowski. Big Lebowski. When they're driving down the road and Goodman jumps out of the car out of nowhere uh-huh. and he starts and he's rolling. Yeah. And he's got a machine gun <laughs> and it just starts firing by accident. Yeah. I oh my God. Yeah. I yeah. mean, what a moment. That's great. You don't see him exiting the car, like you're uh-huh. not seeing that coming. And then you're not even thinking about the fact that the guy's holding a machine gun and it just starts firing randomly. Yeah. Again, it's that danger. Anything like a gun just going out off without anyone's permission is yeah. so funny to me. Yeah, they're twisted guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my my friend worked on um, maybe it was Hail Caesar. He worked on one of the more recent ones, and he said they're just very serious guys, right, on set. Yeah, and I was like, what was it like? Was it the best? And he was like, it was kind of a bummer because they're just really they're not super talkative, right? They sort of eat lunch by themselves, and I think uh-huh. they're just so in there. Little bubble. Yeah, which is, you know, that's an artist at work. Yeah, I'm sure you have to be to create that world and stay in it. Because what I don't, I I don't know if people who have never made a movie or not acted in movies, you know, the the single hardest thing to achieve for most directors is a consistent tone. It's Mm -hmm. because real life is happening. So day one, you're shooting, Mm -hmm. you don't know most of the people you're working with, right? Mm-hmm. And people have, you're nervous. Everyone's, the actors are nervous. The director's nervous. The studio's nervous. And then it finds this rhythm in the middle, right? And then towards the end, now now, now, real life also is saying like, God, I'm, this is going to be over soon. I'm going to miss these people. So all this stuff's happening. You're developing all these, the, the, the relationships are all evolving really quickly. Yeah. So it's very hard to shoot the last scene of your movie yeah. and have it have the same tone as the first mm-hmm. scene in your movie. And the thing that the 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 Coen brothers are the very very best at is that their their movies have this mm-hmm. consistent tone no matter how crazy they get whether it's an action sequence or a sweet scene or this or that they're just the masters of tone and I have to imagine they have to police each other on yeah. that or just stay really focused on what that tone is as a director do you want to um when you finish your movie are you ever like oh man I wish I could go back and and shoot that first week again cuz now we're at like we're humming we're all uh, like cruising together. I haven't had that experience. What I usually, what I've had, I keep learning over and over again. I'll probably never figure it out. Is um, I feel like the tone thing comes easy to me because I'm an actor that has a certain tone. So mm. I just, I've, I've also written the script, so I set it in my voice, and I feel like I know how I would play each of the characters before I start shooting, and and it's just. Because I'm the tone, mm-hmm. you know, it makes it easier for me. Like when I'm watching the performance, I'm like, that's not how I would want to see it. Or right. that's not how I would deliver it. It just makes my, it more, it's clear for me. What I do nonstop is I overwrite the first act so much. Mm. And then I deal with it 
for the next six months. Like really? I shoot it as written. Uh-huh. And then in editing, I have to get it tighter and tighter, tighter and tighter, tighter, tighter. And it's just so hard. And I just keep making the same mistake. That's interesting because usually or traditionally the second act is Most people have problems bear. with their their endings. Endings are a real bad. Uh-huh. You know, that seems to be where most people stumble, but I really stumble in the, the first act. Huh. Yeah. I want to tell too much story. I do. Right. I just, I have a hard time getting out of the gates. Yeah. I usually, when I'm writing a script, when I hit that halfway point, mm-hmm. I'm off to the races. Like then it's just, it's a, it's a blast. I know exactly where it's ending. Right. And, I, and I know, and I know I'm running out of space. Mm-hmm. I know I like 110 pages is approaching quickly. So I just get way more economical with my writing. Right. And the pace just picks up and I can barely fit in what I know needs to fit right. in. And there's something about just starting with a blank uh-huh. piece of paper, knowing yeah. you have some wiggle room with 120 pages. I'm Honey German. And I'm Carolina Bermudez. And, and this, this is Life in Spanglish. And you know we're cooking it up in here. We got that arroz con pollo waiting for you. Why are you looking at me so confused? Because I'm like, what are we cooking? We don't have a stove. <laughs> you got the bajo. I'll get, you know, the, you got the mangu. We got it all for you at Life in Spanglish. I need a sancocho if I'm getting any type of food. Listen and follow on the iHeartRadio app or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Not to go down the rabbit hole of writing, but yeah. do you um, kind of hammer it out and then go back and do rewrites or do you rewrite kind of every day as you go? Yeah. And this kind of ends up being my singular tip I have if be, whenever people, the few people have asked me for writing advice. Um, my trick is I give myself permission to write something terrible. Mm. So I go sit down, write eight pages. It can suck. Mm-hmm. It's all right. It's all right to suck. It doesn't have to be good. Yeah. The only person who's seeing it is you. Yeah. And then tomorrow I'll start my writing day by rereading the eight pages I wrote the mm-hmm. day before. And then I will refine those and I'll make them better. By the way, if you're a good writer, you're a good writer. You're not going to write something shitty. Mm-hmm. It's just the barrier of thinking, fuck, I got to write a perfect scene. or yeah. It's got to perfectly fit into this jigsaw puzzle. That can get overwhelming for mm-hmm. me and daunting. And that's that's actually what prevents me from wanting to write is mm-hmm. just the expectation of it being great. Yeah. So once I give myself permission to write something terrible, mm-hmm. like just puke out these three scenes, right. you know, it's going to be set in a bowling alley. Then, you know, you're going to a cornfield and then yeah. you're going to end up wherever, just right. at least get that down <clears throat> the, the architecture of it. And then yeah. you can work on the dialogue and everything later. So yeah, I'm a big, I, what I like to do is I go away for like week bursts or 10 day bursts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much harder now that I have two kids. Sure. Uh, but my wife's generally helpful in this, now it's like four day bursts, but every day I got to write eight pages. Mm-hmm. And then I'm just in a cycle of rereading them, rewriting them. Then, then that juice is flowing and throughout the week it gets easier and easier. And mm-hmm. that's kind of my approach. Are you, uh, I'm not someone that could sit down and write two pages a day for six months. Yeah, that's no. not how my brain works. Is Kristen a sounding board for you as you go? Or do you kind of say, here it is at the end. Let me know what you think. I generally say here it is at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless I've written a scene I think is so funny that I'm excited about right. it and I might want to, you know. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. Like I had this crazy scene in Hit and Run about finding out Bradley Cooper's character had been raped in jail uh-huh. and I'm trying to comfort him, but the, my approach to comforting him just gets more and more racist and yeah. more and more inappropriate. And I'm just like <laughs> digging a that deeper scene. and deeper hole uh-huh. and he's getting more and more offended. And when I wrote that, I just thought, I just felt good like, 
oh my God, I, I found the line. I feel like I walked it for uh-huh. like six minutes of arguing Yeah, where it's like, it's obvious enough that I'm trying my hardest to comfort him. And that's uh-huh. why I'm being such a, yeah. you know, uh, insensitive idiot. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Well, we finish up here with a couple of uh, quick segments. What Ebert said in five questions. Do you have time? Absolutely. What what is the what is the what's Ebert said? Uh, I just read a little bit from his review because oh, I'm always yeah, curious. Yeah. Oh yeah. And this is one of the rare ones where uh, Roger Ebert didn't get it. He got it wrong. He got it wrong. Yeah, it happens um, to the best of us. One and a half stars. He really oh, didn't like this my, movie. By the way, <laughs> what could be? Oh my God! Thank you. What could be more comforting to know if you've ever had a movie reviewed uh-huh. that Raising Arizona got one and a half stars? <laughs> That's just fantastic. Yeah, for real. So he says one of the problems with Raising Arizona. Uh, the movie is narrated by its hero, a man who specializes in robbing convenience stores. But it sounds as if he has just graduated from the Rooster Cogburn School of, uh, I don't even know this word, eloc- elocution. Mm. Uh, since the basic idea of the movie is a good one and there are talented people in the cast, what we have is a film shut down by its own forced mannered style. The movie cannot decide if it exists in the real world of trailer parks and 7-Elevens or in a fantasy world of characters from another dimension cannot decide if it's about real people or comic exaggerations it moves so uneasily from one level of reality to another that we're finally just baffled so i read that and i think that makes me feel so good you just didn't get it (laughs) yeah because it was all those things on purpose yes intentionally and perfectly executed and you're right that's exactly what it is yeah yeah and then they created a genre or their own paradigm and yeah for sure so and And i bet uh, he would even certainly now he'd admit that was wrong. He has done that in years later and said, Hey, it turns out I got this wrong. Yeah. That's cool. But I bet not only has he admitted he got it wrong, but I bet he's actually judged subsequent Coen brothers movies against that movie. Probably as a perfect template of, yeah. <laughs> you know, cause it's weird that that's, I think that's still their best movie for me. Uh, I mean, I'm There's a ton of good Miller's ones, crossing is up there for me. It's so awesome. And of course, Fargo, but I like them all. Yeah, I do too. You know what one I absolutely love that everyone hates is uh, Intolerable Cruelty. I love that movie. Oh, the dialogue in it's that to so me great. is is as on point as uh, as Raising Arizona. Yeah, I mean, I, I when mean, Cedric the Entertainer goes, "The dogs had a taste for anus africanus." <laughs> I was when I got hit with that line, anus africanus. So great. Or Billy Bob Thornton eating the tearing up the the prenup and eating it, and uh-huh. he just keeps going. I love this woman. I love her. I love her. I love this woman. And he I just love that movie. Stop. Oh, it's so I think funny. that and Burn After Reading are both way underrated. Yeah. I thought Burn After Reading was great. Now, Burn After Reading, I didn't love. Oh, really? Yeah. My kind of complaint when I was leaving, the, I, w- I went with Kristen. We saw it and we were leaving the this theater right here, Arclight. Uh-huh. We're in the car. I'm like, do you like it? And she goes, oh, I loved it. And I go, really? Who are you rooting for? Uh, well, that's true. And I was like, and what, what, what I... Why I think that's relevant is that no matter how gifted you are, if you break those rules of poetics, sure. like Aristotle, yeah. if you don't want your hero to achieve something, mm-hmm. you can't even wit your way out of it. Yeah. For me, I was just like, wait, so one woman's motivation is to get a boob job. Well, yeah. You don't really want her to achieve that goal. They're all but, fairly vapid. Yeah. And they just all have goals you really kind of don't want them to yeah. achieve. And I just found myself going like, I just don't know who the hero of this movie is. I don't, I'm not emotionally yeah. dying for something good to happen to one of them. But knowing the Coens, they were like, hey, let's make a movie where you can't root for anyone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it was intentional. I don't think yeah. they accidentally, right. you know, forgot to. They've right. done plenty of movies with <laughs> like, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> protagonists and goals. 
All right. And we finish up with five questions. Uh, first movie you remember seeing in the theater? Yeah. So I said it when we started. I yeah. think the first thing I remember is, is Conan the Barbarian okay. at the at the drive-in. Yeah. Oh, that or that are that are Scarface. Well, that answers the second question. Then first R-rated movie. Those are both rated pretty hard. I R. started R. I don't think I'd seen a PG movie until <laughs> I was like thirteen. Let me change that. First PG movie. <laughs> Frozen. Nice. Uh, number three. Will you walk out of a bad movie? I never used to, mm-hmm. ever, because I do just enjoy sitting in that theater enough yeah. that I'll just stay. A couple of hours of quiet. But as I've gotten older and I have less time and there's places, there's things I could be doing, mm-hmm. I, I more and more I'll walk out of a movie. Right. You know? That comes with age a little bit. Yeah. Start to think about time spent. Time spent. And then also, I, I think the more and more I know about the the, the construction of a movie- mm-hmm. If if I can just see where it's going, it's just going to get progressively worse and right. eat itself even more. Yeah. I'll just go, I don't want to witness this. Yeah, yeah. Or like I'll walk out of some superhero movies because it's like they. I already got bored with the second act fight uh-huh. scene. So I know the third act fight scene is going to be twice as long as the one that just bored right. me. And I'm like, I just can't do it. I can't, I can't see another yeah. computer game fight. Yeah. That seems to be what I have the least amount of tolerance for is like just – Heavy CGI stuff. Mm-hmm. I just feel like, um, and this is why I've never done CGI stunts. It's like, it doesn't matter how good the algorithm gets. Mm-hmm. There's something about, they can't master the physics of no. how things are supposed to move through space, how they're supposed yep. to fly, how they're Absolutely. supposed to impact each other. And I just can't ever emotionally buy in. Yeah. I mean, some are, granted, there's some amazing CGI that has gotten me. Right. But just to see a whole fight sequence that it, that has yeah. been computer generated, I, I just, I bail out emotionally. Well, even just like you said, the, uh, a scene where a car falls on the ground uh-huh. from a jump in CGI, like you can't fake no. something in three dimensions yeah. having a, f- like physics is at play. You yes. can't fake physics. <laughs> you really can't. I mean, maybe at some point, through, I got to say when I saw Jungle Book, that was maybe the first time where I was like. Yeah. Ooh, this is almost here for me. I'm I'm pretty in. I just I, named I that, that as my perfect. favorite use of CGI, actually. Oh, ah, yeah. 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 It looked really, really good. It couldn't have been done better. Yeah. Yeah. It's really impressive. But you have to know the limits, you know. Well, I had- You I've, can't do anything. I did a Favreau movie, um, Zathura. And oh, I love that movie. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, I, I, Probably the best movie I've ever acted in. But um, so I'm friends with him, and I, I saw Jungle Book- and I asked him afterwards, I'm like, I don't know what I saw. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know enough about movies to know what you did. Like, yeah. what did you, how on earth did that I know. happen? And he's like, well, you make that movie three times. Mm-hmm. You do a line sketch mm-hmm. version of the movie with crude drawings. And then there's a round of notes and there's input, right? Yeah. And then you go into a, um, like a computer layout version of it. Like a, 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 a what do they call it? Pro, uh res doesn't matter yeah they do a crappy digital version then they do a really high-end digital pass Uh and then you start filming with actors in the screen screen space so he's like you know ultimately i made that movie four times Mm -hmm. boy who knew he had those goods oh yeah incredible yeah good for him uh number four i try to tailor to the guest so i'm gonna say uh for dak shepherd what is your favorite all-time car from a movie Sure. I think we should limit it to from a movie. Yeah. 
And I got to go with the 77 Trans Am from Smoking the Bandit. It's pretty hard to not do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty spectacular. Uh, Are you going to own one of those one day? It's so funny that I haven't owned one of them. I I was about to say, it's I have a lot of cars and I collect cars. Uh And uh, they were such pieces of shit. Like, if you actually know about cars. I've kind of heard that. Yeah. They had, like, even the... So the one he had in the car in the movie was a six point six liter, so like a four hundred cubic inch V eight, mm-hmm. and I think that car made one hundred and eighty horsepower. Mm-hmm. And a Ford Focus today makes like two hundred and fifty horsepower from a four wow. cylinder. So they just they wouldn't even spin the tires. I mean, they're just terrible. Yeah, uh, cars. So I know that I would be getting one and having to put whole new engine, new trans, new suspension, brakes mm-hmm. were terrible, blah blah blah. And I I just haven't uh, been able to bite that off yet. Yeah. But I do feel like I will before I die, put on a cowboy hat and right. do a big smoky burnout out of my driveway <laughs> with my daughters in the car. And they'll be so embarrassed and don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing. Oh, I love it. Uh, and then finally, movie going 101. What is your uh, what is your ritual for the movie theater? Well, I'm a bit of um, – this drives my wife insane. Mm-hmm. Ideally, I want to be there 15 minutes beforehand. Yeah. Because I want to buy snacks. Mm-hmm. I'm so into the snacks. What are the snacks? Popcorn. Just one conservative. One squirt of butter in the middle, one mm-hmm. squirt of butter on top. <laughs> and I like to get a hot dog. Okay. And then I like to get a big Diet Coke. Yeah. And then I like to look at all the posters in the lobby. Yeah, me too. I want to look at every one of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really study them. Not just, you know, walk by them. Uh-huh. I want to stand in front of each one for a minute or two. And then I want to sit down and I want to start getting amped up for the movie. Yeah. Like I want to start getting pumped about it. Like, uh-huh. well, I think this is going to happen. <laughs> you know, really whipping myself into a lather. And then, um, and then, and then, then I love the previews. Uh, I love getting excited after each one. And, mm-hmm. well, we got to see that one. That's so great. And then I'm, my whole goal is to not finish my hot dog and popcorn before the credits finish. Really? Which, which I'm rarely good at. Usually by the time those credits end at the beginning, the hot dogs. I'm, I'm out of food. Oh, the opening credits. Yes, the opening credits. Oh, I thought credits. you were talking at the end. I was like, man, no, you no, can no, make no, a hot no. dog last. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, my, my goal is to get to the, the opening credits, still okay. have some food. Like sure. still be eating while those are going on. Yeah, Which yeah. is very hard for me to do. Yeah, same here. Once those trailers start going, I just yeah. start nervously munching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Chuck. Yeah. So th- glad I rewrote that tr- that tweet. Yeah. I, that's so weird. I, that couldn't have been <laughs> any so more off yeah. base. All right. Very thanks, on, man. Very on brand for me. Uh, appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. See you next time. All right, everybody. That was a lot of fun. Uh, Dak Shepard was a super nice guy. And I'm glad to have met him. It was very kind of him to make some time and come over here on a busy day and talk movies and life and writing and directing. And it was very funny to get that story about the the Twitter uh, miscommunication from years ago. And we laughed about that afterward. I I remember that tweet coming in and we were excited. So I'm going to try and do some Google research and see what Josh wrote as well and how he may have misinterpreted that. That's kind of funny. Because uh, we've always been big fans of both he and his wife. So it was a lot of fun. It was fun to talk Raising Arizona. We both clearly have a big love for that movie. And um, it was just a lot of fun to talk to him. Very, very good dude. So we wish him all the best luck moving forward in his career. Uh, and with Armchair Expert, I told him afterward if there's anything he ever needs. Of course, is from one podcaster now to another that he can count on us for sure to help promote it. But it's doing great. So give that a listen. 
And uh, I recommend starting with the episode with his wife. Very uh, illuminating conversation about uh, life and marriage and just sort of the struggles of, of real life. It's really good. So thanks to Dax for coming in. You can uh, find him on Twitter uh, at Dax Shepard, D-A-X-S-H-E-P-A-R-D on Twitter. And thanks for tuning in. And until next time, go out and buy that Trans Am. Burn rubber around the neighborhood, why don't you? Movie Crush is produced, engineered, edited, and soundtracked by Noel Brown and Ramsey Yunt at HowStuffWorks Studios, Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Honey German. And I'm Carolina Bermudez. And, and this, this is Life in Spanglish. And you know we're cooking it up in here. We got that arroz con pollo waiting for you. Why are you looking at me so confused? Because I'm like, what we cooking? We don't have a stove. <laughs> you got the bajo. I'll get, you know, the, you got the mangu. We got it all for you at Life in Spanglish. I need a sancocho if I'm getting any type of food. Listen and follow on the iHeartRadio app or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The entire first season of This Time Tomorrow is available now to binge from start to finish. In this new iHeart series presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me, Osvaloshin, and Kara Price as we explore the exciting possibilities of the next generation of connectivity. From smart cities to future farms, you'll find out just how much could change with future 5G networks. Listen to This Time Tomorrow on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.